Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University. Joining us today is Dr. Andy Peitzman, Professor and Vice Chair of Surgery at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Peitzman is the lead author on the largest study on blunt splenic injury published to date. That study, titled Blunt Splenic Injury in Adults, a multi-institutional study of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, was published in the Journal of Trauma, Volume 49, page 177, in August of 2000. Since that publication, though, more information has been published, including an update to the EAST Practice Management Guideline for Splenic Injury, which can be accessed through the east.org website. Today, I hope to discuss the current strategy for management of blunt splenic injury with Dr. Peitzman. Thank you and welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Before we get into the controversies about non-operative or operative management of splenic injury, let's start by defining our terms. What is meant by non-operative management? Does it include observation only, embolization only? What does it mean? I think that's an area that can be confusing in the literature. Um, the, the way I have always defined it and what we used in the, used in the uh, series of EAST studies was um, any patient admitted through the ED with the intent to observe and avoid operating, wh- whether the patient ultimately went to the operating room 24 hours later or six hours later, so any patient who on whom you plan to observe. I think... Um, Angioembolization is another tool that helps you uh, increase the likelihood of non-operative management, but I think the, the initial decision is you operate or you manage the patient non-operatively. So patients who are embolized uh, but not operated upon, you would lump into the non-operative cohort, non-operative management cohort. You don't yeah. consider embolization a form of operation or hemorrhage control? Correct. Okay. Correct. And then what is meant by failure of non-operative management? Does this include the need to transfuse a patient, or is failure simply ultimately we opened up the abdomen and took out the spleen? Well, I think failure not only includes uh, operating for the splenic injury, but for a missed intra-abdominal injury as well. And that, again, is not uniform in the literature. So I think if you've missed a pancreatic injury or a ruptured bladder on a patient on whom you are managing them non-operatively for the splenic injury, that's also failed non-operative management. So I think, at least in the East papers, those were the criteria. If you went for laparotomy for any injury in a patient on whom you were being observed non-operatively for your splenic injury, that's failure non-operative management. I think the issue of transfusion is an entirely different discussion. And, you know, at what point does a risk-benefit ratio for non-operative management change when you're now transfusing the patient? And, uh, again, we could debate about that, but our criteria are essentially as soon as you're hanging that first unit of blood for the splenic injury, you should be operating on the patient because now the risk of introducing disease with a blood transfusion or an immunosuppression is higher than the risk in an adult anyway of the consequences of taking the spleen out. So two different questions. And, and I, I got to say, I personally certainly agree with you, and that's what I've been teaching my residents, is that uh, transfusing someone four or six units of blood and getting them through without a splenectomy is not necessarily success now that we know all the downsides of absolutely. transfusion. That, that, that's absolutely failure. But the strict definition is any patient who required laparotomy for an intraperitoneal injury, spleen or otherwise. So with those definitions in the background, let's start by briefly reviewing the key findings in your paper and the, in 2000, and we'll come up to the uh, most recent uh, clinical practice guidelines through EAST. 
the basis of your study was to try to answer a discrepancy that was noted between previous studies and the past East practice management guidelines um, and, uh, and other publications. At that time, the East guidelines suggested that neither the grade of injury nor the amount of fluid noted on CAT scan were predictive of failure of non-operative management. Your paper didn't find that. You guys noted that, in fact, failure of non-operative management uh, could be predicted or was associated with the grade of injury and the degree of hemoperitoneum. Any ideas as to why the discrepant results? Sure. Um, so the, the papers that were leading up to that and actually what prompted that study were, number one, uh, the series were combined adult and pediatric splenic injuries. And obviously the, the kids do well no matter what, so that skewed the observation. Secondly, many of the studies were single institution studies and high-grade splenic injuries are actually very uncommon. So sweeping generalizations were being made. We never operate for splenic injury when it really was um, an inaccurate statement because there were simply single-digit grade 4, grade 5 injuries to make that sort of uh, assumption. And the third assumption that was really wrong is we assumed that the natural history of splenic injury and hepatic injury were the same, and they're not. The two injuries behave differently. So j just to clarify that point, so hepatic injuries you can avoid operation in a stable patient irrespective of the grade of the injury and how much hemoperitoneum is present for liver injuries. Spleens don't behave that way. So um, as you mentioned, what that paper showed is that the need for either immediate operation for splenic injury or late operation, meaning you failed, uh, did correlate with uh, grade of splenic injury and then amount of hemoperitoneum as independent variables. So those were the three assumptions that really were found to be incorrect in, in, in the earlier papers. And, and i got to point out, for those who haven't read the paper, uh, these, these three critical findings are actually very well depicted in graph form. Um, so just by thumbing through the paper, one can see, based on grade, what the probability of failure was, and based on degree of hemoperitoneum, what the probability of failure was. Now, the, the issue, though, is that the current EAST guidelines that, again, are on the website, again, based on the literature, suggests that the grade of injury on CAT scan or degree of hemoperitoneum are not contraindications to a trial of non-operative management. So the guidelines toned it down a little bit and said, you know, it, it's not that they're not associated with failure, but they are not contraindications to a trial of non-operative management. What do you do with a grade 4, grade 5 spleen? Well, that that's sort of a non-recommendation. That's no help at all to anybody. So, so going to the original uh, splenic... Uh, paper. So the, the failure rate for grade one was 5%, 10% for grade two. Um, I think it was 25% for grade three, grade four, 33%, and then 75% failure rate for grade five. But that's a little bit misleading because there were 78 grade five injuries, and that failure rate was actually three or four patients failed non-operative management because the other 74 had already gone to have their spleens mm -hmm. taken out. So it just emphasizes how important it is to read those papers and actually to have the denominator and not just the numerator where we didn't operate on these splenic injuries where you know the natural history of the disease. So I think there are a couple more recent papers that really help clarify that. So there were two papers that looked at the National Trauma Data Bank and high-grade splenic injuries, grade four and five, one written by Smith and the other was first authored by Greg Watson out of our place. And what the current data says is that we are trying to oper to observe um, about half of grade four and five injuries. This is National Trauma Data Bank. And the failure rate is over 
So you can conclude from that that there is not a contraindication to observing a high-grade splenic injury, but the flip side is 75% of those patients are going to be in the OR. And you will get away with that often, but not always. So probably, to me, the most important observation from the, the spleen uh, papers from East was the one that we published in JAX, I think in 2006, where it was, um, we looked at the patients who failed non-operative management. So the 1,400 patients that we observed there were uh, about 100 failures. And, that, and again, all adults, so no kids. And then we obtained the medical records on those patients, blinded medical records, pre-hospital, ED, operating all the notes to try to figure out could we predict who failed and why they failed. And um, because the other thing that we observed in the East study is of the, of the patients who failed non-operative management, 61% failed in the first 24 hours, which means we made a bad decision mm -hmm. from the front door. And 90% failed in the first three days. But that early failure rate really made us question bad decision-making, what, what can we do to avoid that? And um, so when we looked at the patients who failed, if you take a single vital sign, so the, the patient comes in and they have a blood pressure of 100 when they first hit the door, and you don't look before or after that, meaning they've been hypotensive three times in the pre-hospital arena, y you make a dangerous assumption. So what we found in, in that study that First of all, the patients who fail non-operative management, 15% crash and burn. That's how they declare themselves. Um, and then the more common indications were more tachycardia, declining hematocrit, more abdominal pain. Um, but of the patients who failed, um, there were uh, 12 deaths. And of the 12 deaths, 60% were preventable deaths. So they were from uh, missed hollow viscous injuries, um, splenic injuries that bled late. Uh, of the three patients who exsanguinated from their splenic injuries, two did so without ever making it to the operating room. So what that paper says is the ultimate risk of failed non-operative management is patients will die unnecessarily. So the difficulty with making a statement that the grade is not a contraindication. You have to be willing to concede that there will be patients who die from failure of non-operative management with that approach. To me, a death from a splenic injury, one of the easiest sources of bleeding to control, should never happen. Should simply never happen. So it really depends on what your premises are. And with that as being a basic statement, no patient should die from a splenic injury because we haven't taken the spleen out, then if you're going to operate on 75% of those patients anyway, then that's what you ought to be doing. So that means that your default for a grade four, grade five spleen is to operate, and you, for, if you were to not operate, you'd kind of have to walk yourself off the cliff. I suppose the other way around of walking yourself over the cliff of I'm going to talk myself into an operation. Right. So you know the the risk there is really being too clever and outthinking yourself. So you've got a simple problem with a simple solution, and now you're trying to to make it too complicated. So. My thoughts about angiography have changed almost 180 degrees over the last five years, and this is where angiography becomes important because many of the papers early on with angiography, it wasn't clear exactly when we should do it, when we shouldn't do it, and now it's becoming clear in some recent publications that the uh, failure rate 
for low-grade injuries with angiography, you really don't impact that very much. Where angiography really changes the failure rate of non-operative management is with grade four and five injuries. So in the stable patient, with first of all, that, that stable patient is rarely has a grade five injury. Those patients are actually usually unstable. So one of the other observations of the uh, East study looking at failure of non-operative management is of the patients who were who fail non-operative management, actually 45% were initially stable, so appropriate patients for observation. Um, the second large group was responders, but 25% of the patients that we admitted, multi-center study, for observation were hemodynamically unstable, unstable. So the failure rate in that group was high, and the mortality was uh, three times higher than so the patients did not die from their injuries. They died from not going to the operating room mm -hmm. with clear indication. So I, I think as we apply non-operative management, we've got to realize that it must be a stable patient. And again, why looking at those vital signs and progression. So how we defined uh, stability was, or maybe uh, instability was uh, more than two blood pressures less than 100 or heart rates greater than 112. So if you got one or two episodes and then you stabilized, you are now a responder, but if you were hypotensive or tachycardic that third time, that's an unstable patient. So the other thing we learned from that study is, again, not looking at the snapshot, but the whole spectrum of vital signs to define stable and not stable. So I think patient selection is critical, and that was one of the major predictors of failure in, in those patients. But to get back to angiography, I think that in a stable patient that you will um, decrease the failure rate substantially, again, with recent papers um, with a grade in four and five injuries with angiography embolization. So I, that I wouldn't categorically say I'd operate on those, all those patients, but observation is not an option, with a, not a safe option, I don't think, with a grade four or five injury. Right, and that's, that's why I wanted to start by discussing, you know, what is non-operative management? Because we talk about, uh, you know, embolization as a form of non-operative management, true, but when one looks at the papers, you have to ask how many of the patients who had a grade four and got away with non-operative management were in fact embolized, um, and 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 look at those patients as a separate bucket. Right, and, and again, there have been uh, several patients in the past year that have addressed exactly that. And I think one of the interesting observations is um, that when the angiography was done for the grade four and five injuries, even without a blush, they embolized them, and found that that again decreased the failure rate. So I think the high-grade injuries. Um, you should routinely, just based on current literature, angiogram, embolize them even without a blush because, again, that will decrease the failure rate of non-operative management. And that's actually in the guidelines. So the guidelines uh, currently <clears throat> recommend angio for all splenic injuries that are grade 3 or higher um, even if there's not a blush present, and it, it's for this very reason. Correct. But the recent publications have really been grade 4 and 5, but um, we're arguing a minor point. Sure. So. Now, Moving along a little bit, um, we teach all of our residents about splenography. It's just something that we all talk about, you know, whether you want to wrap it or sew it or whatever you want to do, pledge it. And courses like Adam even give the resident an opportunity to practice it. Mm -hmm. But realistically, what is the role of splenography in, in a patient with a grade 3, 4 type injury? I, I'm assuming no one's going to do a grade 5 splenography. So I think most of the splenographies we were doing in the 80s uh, were for injuries that we now observe, that we treat non-operatively. So the opportunity to perform splenography has decreased dramatically. Um, realistically, most of those patients are uh, penetrating trauma and not blunt trauma because most of the injuries, as I said, we would observe. 
I, I think if you can save the spleen, um, you should. I mean, the risk of overwhelming post-splenectomy is low, but not zero. And we can talk about that later if you want. But I think it must be a hemodynamically stable patient without other th threats to limb or life, um, which again is rare in the blunt trauma victim for whom you're, you're operating. So I, I do think it is a worthwhile exercise. I don't think it's worth spending a lot of time to do it. Um, and uh, so the, the other thing that I think is important is if you're trying to make a decision, you know, should I save it, should I not, that in order to be immunocompetent, you need to have at least 40% of the spleen as a functional mass. So if you can't save at least half a spleen, it's not even worth thinking about it because they won't, even if you have splenic function, they probably won't be immunocompetent afterwards. And it goes without saying, if the patient has other injuries, that's not the time to uh, splenorphize. Right. And that's the rule, not the exception when you're operating on a patient with a splenic injury. Um, let's talk about let's talk a bit about patients who um, have had a again a moderate to high grade. It's always going to be the grade three, four, five that, mm -hmm. are, that are the point of controversy uh, injury, and they actually undergo non-operative management. Let's just say we are successful. What's the role of screening CT scan to evaluate for pseudoaneurysm? What is this delayed splenic rupture we all read about? So the issue of, first of all, re-imaging, looking for those pseudoaneurysms, you know, re-imaging at 48 hours is very controversial. And I, I do base a lot of my decision-making on the papers that have come out of Memphis and that Tim Fabian has done, who has shown that you double your, uh, the incidence of finding pseudoaneurysms with that delayed CT scan. I mean, it doubles how often you find those. And, and uh, I mean, again, I think that's been confirmed at our center too, where that first CT scan, there was no blush, and then you get a CT scan 48 hours later, and it's like a Christmas tree with everything lighting up. So I do think, again, with prospective data that we have out of Memphis, we re-image everybody at 48 hours looking for pseudoaneurysms. That, that's probably not what the majority of trauma centers do in the country. I mean, I know that, that that's a true statement, but I think... His data is pretty hard to uh, refute, and again, that's been our observation as for, well. For which grade injury? The high-grade injuries, 3, 4, and 5. 3, 4, and 5. Yeah. You will find pseudoaneurysms. So I think the delayed ruptures are, you know, again, often delayed diagnoses, but I think some of those patients are pseudoaneurysms that we've not found and, again, completely avoidable. So I, I have to say, anecdotally, we have the same experience, not so much with the grade threes, but the fours. I mean, the fives, I think most of us would remove. So the grade mm -hmm. fours, we have also been using, utilizing um, uh, screening CT scan, and not in a protocolized sense, but just more of a attending discretion. And we have found a number of uh, pseudoaneurysms delayed. Right. But, but that that is our, our patient management guideline. Every grade three and four and five gets a uh, splenic-focused CT scan at 48 hours. Laparoscopy. Mm -hmm. uh, laparoscopy has assumed certainly a much more prominent role in surgery uh, since 2000, since your paper in 2000. Um, much lower wound complications, much lower morbidity, much less pain earlier out of the hospital. Sure. Um, what's the role of laparoscopic splenectomy in trauma? So I, I think acutely, um, very uncommon. Um, you know, I think in a Stable patient with an so where we've applied it, and again, there's not much data out there, it's really case reports. I think you know, in a stable patient at 48 hours, the crit is drifting down and and the spleen's coming out, but he has no other injuries, you would consider it. Um, I, I think that would be one time where it would be appropriate again, assuming you have the skill set to, to not make it difficult. 
The other time is actually with delayed complications and patients who have uh, splenic cysts, um, who, which are more common than you think. Uh, you know, we've had a number of those, and and then what you can do is uh, marsupialize the cyst laparoscopically or do a splenectomy. But I think the the role is really in semi urgent or semi elective circumstances, and not the patient who is acute. So that's where we've applied it in those circumstances. Yeah, I have to say we're we're much in the same boat. I'm always worried that uh, when I take the patient back with a drifting crit, I'll uh, convert a drifting crit to a rapidly dropping crit if as you manipulate the, right. the spleen laparoscopically. Absolutely. Um, so as we're about to uh, finish uh, our talk with you, I thought we'd uh, try to challenge you with a few scenarios, uh, none of which uh, are designed to be easy. So hopefully I can make you think a little bit. Good um, luck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> let's say uh, you have a 25-year-old male. He falls down a bunch of steps while inebriated, uh, goes home because he's inebriated, uh, falls asleep, and wakes up, finally calls his girlfriend about six hours later, um, and starts complaining of a lot of abdominal pain. The girlfriend brings him to the emergency department. Now it's about six, seven hours out. He's got severe abdominal pain. His blood pressure systolic is 88. Uh, his heart rate is 115. Fast is positive. Uh, but while you're kind of trying to figure all this out, the nurses give him... Uh, two liters of fluid, and now his blood pressure is solid at 115, holding steady. Um, you get a CAT scan, and it shows a grade four splenic injury. What would you do with that? So you have to decide whether this patient is basically somebody who has declared himself at home as a failure or somebody who just did not have the opportunity to get any resuscitation and is now a responder. And I, I think as you describe the scenario um, that I would – uh, treat him as a responder, give him a chance to prove himself, put him in an ICU. and uh, But the next time he hiccuped, his spleen comes out. Would you empirically angio him? Um, no, no blush on CT scan? No blush on CT scan. Um, based on what we just discussed, I th in a grade four injury, is it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, based on the data, the answer is yes. I, I would, but I, I, I do think that the decision there is this, this somebody who's declared himself as a failure already and we need to intervene right to second or is this somebody that we go down our algorithm and he's grade forward. We, we just discussed empirically angiogramming those patients. So I think that would be my approach is give him a chance to prove himself and send him for angioembolization. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's actually a, a patient we had recently and uh, we did exactly what you said, uh, which is we uh, took him to um, uh, angio and they empirically embolized. Uh, he did fine. Um, and I think that the teaching point we had uh, for the residents and the fellows is that time, he declared himself through time. What I told the residents was if he was destined to die, then in the six hours he was laying asleep while inebriated, he would be dead by now. So he's almost destined to be a, a, a responder, especially when he resuscitated so quickly with simply two liters of crystalloid, not even blood products, and we gave him a chance. Uh, the in my mind, had the same scenario recurred, but the guy showed up, uh, by ambulance immediately, I, I probably would have taken a spleen out. I mean, I, I still would have resuscitated that patient to see if he was in the responder or, or, or category or not. But I, I do think that is interesting. I, the, the other problem is nobody knows exactly how to embolize these patients. Is it central? Is it peripheral? So what we have to remember is when you centrally embolize a spleen, there's still blood flow. You know, you decrease the pressure head, but there's still blood flow. And there is a real failure rate of embolization, probably somewhere between 10 and 15%. The, the only time you should 
probably selectively embolizes when there's a clear blush isolated to a segment, and then obviously the consequences of that are, are you going to infarct that portion of the spleen, and that patient sometimes gets sick from that. But exactly, should we centrally embolize, peripherally? I mean, that, that is not clearly defined in the literature based on what we know so far. But everybody has to realize that you decrease pressure head, there's still a risk of bleeding, and in a patient who really won't tolerate failure, you know, maybe in that circumstance, a better option is to take the spleen out. So, uh, Okay. Uh, it's a busy night for you, so here comes another patient. Uh, this one is a uh, 77-year-old uh, female, falls down a flight of stairs, uh, and is seen at an outside hospital where she is noted to have a grade 3 splenic injury with active extrav on CT scan. There's no surgeon there, so they call the <coughs> regional trauma center and they refer her. Uh, she's being transfused uh, midair, uh, arrives to the trauma center. On arrival, her systolic blood pressure is 90. Her heart rate is 80. What do you do with this patient? Grade 3 spleen. So the early uh, papers uh, described age as a contraindication to non-operative management. We know that that is not the case, that you can observe the older patients. I think, again, one of the papers that came out of the EAST series is the failure rate is higher as you get into the 70s and 80 and 90-year-old patients. There's no doubt um, that there is a, a little bit higher failure rate, but I, I would take that patient to the operating room. So, uh, you know, so I think it, again, is counterintuitive, but I think in those older patients, they have less reserve, so you almost need to be more aggressive, not less aggressive. You know, at her age, she may not be able to generate a tachycardia, so her heart rate of 80 really doesn't affect my decision-making that much. She's hypotensive and has had some fluid resuscitation. So despite her the greater her splenic injury, I would take her to the OR and do a splenectomy. Okay. Uh, and that was actually a real patient at your trauma center, not treated by you, but one of your colleagues uh, who did exactly that back when I was with you guys. Uh, last patient, a 30-year-old male ejected off of a motorcycle. He uh, comes in with a uh, depressed glossocoma score. He's got punctate hemorrhage, hemorrhagic contusions uh, over the uh, cerebral cortex and a grade 3 splenic injury. There's no blush. There's no free fluid around the spleen. Uh, and his blood pressure is about 105, 110 systolic. But he's got this obvious, if not diffuse axonal injury, certainly mm -hmm. a multifocal uh, brain injury. When do you decide to take out this guy's spleen? So, again, I think there's been clarification of that issue. And, again, uh, closed-head in injury was one of the early contraindications, or at least relative contraindications, to non-operative management. I think the data has changed that approach, where in a stable patient with a closed-head injury, you can observe the splenic injury, uh, especially, again, none of the things that we know would predict high risk of failure, not grade 4 or 5 injury, no vascular blush. So I would observe that patient. Uh, follow-up CT scan at 48 hours, and uh, and again, there are several papers that have corroborated that approach that you don't have to operate on the splenic injury in the patient with a closed-head injury. Now, that same patient is now in your intensive care unit being observed, and whatever endpoint you chose, be it a drifting hematocrit or a single drop in blood pressure, occurs. Do you think that patient remains a candidate for angio, or is that just an e-ticket to the operating room? Based on no data, I would take the patient to the operating room. Because, again, the, we talked about the failure rate for embolization being 15% in patients who won't tolerate failure of the embolization. So certainly the closed head injury is exactly that patient where that single episode of hypotension has increased its mortality significantly. So I, I would take the spleen out and not wait for 
failure of an intervention. I would do the definitive intervention in that setting. But we could debate about that. That's There's not lots of data to say that that's the right approach. Well, so this has been a, uh, a really fascinating discussion, and um, I think it points out um, the utility of the East Practice Guidelines, but also some of the deficits that remain in the literature um, as we try to revise these guidelines in the years to come. Uh, so I'd like to thank you for taking the time to kind of go over all these things and uh, letting me pick your brain a little bit with some case studies. My pleasure. Good to do it. We've been speaking today with Dr. Andy Peitzman regarding the modern management of blunt splenic injury. I would like to, uh, again, thank you for taking the time to review this topic with us. I'd also refer the listeners to the East Practice Management Guidelines for review of this topic, as well as many, many others. Uh, I've definitely found the guidelines to be very helpful as I update and revise our own uh, trauma practice management guidelines here at George Washington. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob Axarani.